Well, welcome to Sojourn. It's good to gather together as the church. It's always just refreshing uh, to come together, to sing together, uh, Lord, just to, to, to praise the Lord together, uh, to see him bless us through the gathering of his church. That, uh, As we said, that we don't just come uh, disconnected as individuals. We come together as a family, and uh, it, that's important for us to actually be present with one another, um, to not just think that we can sit at home and just sing songs by ourselves or just listen to a sermon on a podcast or YouTube, but to actually be together with our brothers and sisters, to hear other people around us singing these truths to be reminded and refreshed that it's not just us, that God's grace is unfathomable and reaches to the ends of the earth, uh, and that we in this little church here in Fairfax get to experience that together. So just good to be together with you this morning. And as Alan said, if you're new here, we're grateful that God's brought you to be with us today. Uh, We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 10 this morning as we continue on in our Torah series. Uh, And so if you need a Bible this morning, if you just raise your hand, we'll have a few folks bring a Bible around to you. Uh, We'd love for you to be able to read along with us this morning. The text is not going to be on the screen, and so we're going to go through about 11 verses this morning that we want you to be able to read along uh, with us. And if you don't actually own a Bible, we'd love to give that to you as a gift. We really believe that God's Word is God's Word, and so if that's true, then we want you to have it, uh, to be able to have that and read it throughout the week in your life. You know, it's been a while since I was in college, but it was only recently that I graduated from seminary. Back in May of 2011 is when I graduated from seminary. And one of the things I did before every semester was incessantly check to see when the syllabus was posted for a class. Uh, You know, we could go online and see the syllabus posted, and I would check it over and over and over again. Have they put it up yet? Have they put it up yet? Have they put it up yet? Because I wanted to see what was I going to have to do for this class. How many books was I going to have to read? How long were they? How many tests was I, where was I going to have to take? How many papers would I need to write for this class? What were the requirements for completing this course that I had signed up for? Well, as we jump into the text that we're going to look at today in Deuteronomy 10, we see that that same question is asked, not about a course, but about God. So let's actually go ahead and look at what this question is in Deuteronomy 10. Go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 10. And we see this question in the first verse. So we're going to read these first two verses just to begin our time in God's word this morning. Moses is writing, he's speaking to, he's preaching to God's people, to Israel. And he says this, verse 12, chapter 10, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. What does God require of us? That question is asked by Moses in relation to the people of Israel as they're about to go into the promised land. But it's not just an important question for them to have an answer to. It's important for us to have an answer to as well. And whether you're a follower of Jesus already, or maybe you're just here this morning because a friend invited you, maybe you're just checking out this whole church Christianity thing and who Jesus is and what it really means to know and follow him. But no matter where you're at on your spiritual journey, this question is relevant for you, not only for this life, but for all eternity. What does God require of you? So with that, let's pray. Because as we open God's word, my hope is this morning as we look at this, that God will help us to see the answer to this question and it will impact our life. Bringing about life for some of us maybe, hopefully, 
But for others of us, just to encourage us to continue to walk faithfully with our God. So let's pray to ask God to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts and minds to believe this morning, knowing that his word is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we do pray simply what I just said, that you would, Father, this morning, give us ears to hear from your word. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts and minds to believe this morning that what you say in your word matters. That you give us your word as a gift. It's for our good. Help us to heed your word this morning, to listen to it this morning. And I pray that because we are here, because we are sitting under your word, myself included, God, that you would change our lives for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This section of scripture that we're going to look at this morning in Deuteronomy 10 really is kind of a summary of the whole book of Deuteronomy. As we said a few weeks ago, Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. Moses is is preaching about the law again. What does it look like to live under the lordship of God as the people get ready to go into the promised land? And what we see in this text is that Moses is calling them to action And it's rooted in this question that we just read. What does the Lord your God require of you? As we looked in chapter 9 last week, what we saw is Moses has spent some time, and even at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, rehearsing and reminding and recalling God's saving grace since God's people left Egypt until now. Their track record hasn't been great, but God has been faithful. All of his, their life, Moses is saying, all of your life, all of his promises that have already been fulfilled and are going to be fulfilled have been gifts of grace, gifts of mercy, gifts of love to you. So now what? Now what are we supposed to do? What does God require? The question Moses is really asking as we put it in context is, in light of the grace that you've received, that God has persevered with you, he's lavished this grace on you despite your rebellion, Despite your straying away from him, what does he now require of you? In the rest of verse 12 and end of verse 13, we find the answer. Moses lists off five things. He says that we are to fear the Lord. We're to give reverence to God because of who he is. We're to walk in all his ways. There's nothing outside of our life that we should stray from the way that God calls us to live. We're to walk in all his ways, abiding with him, following him. We're to love him. I mean, this is kind of a paramount command, if not the most important command, that we're to love God. Our affections and our joy are to be in him and for him and found in him. We're to serve him with all our heart and all our soul. In everything you do, word, deed, thought is all done for his glory, to give worship and praise to him. We're to keep all of his commandments. We're to live under his lordship, follow him, live lives of obedience to him as Lord, as king over every part of our life. All these things are interrelated to one another. And we might be thinking, hey, this sounds kind of familiar. Didn't we just talk about this a few weeks ago? This sounds like what Moses says a little bit from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 5. Moses says there, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So Moses is kind of repeating himself here. But man, it's good to repeat yourself. It's good for him to bring about this repetition. It's necessary for God's people because they so easily forget. They so easily wander away. And the same is true for you and for me. 
God's people need to be reminded constantly and consistently that they are called to fear, follow, and love the Lord. And that as Moses says at the end of verse 13, is for their good to do this. Moses says, loving and following the Lord is required. What is required? Loving and following the Lord. But notice where he immediately goes with that. God loved you first. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, behold, to the Lord your God belongs heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Moses brings a few things to our attention here. Notice first what he says about God. God is high and lifted up. He owns the highest heavens in the entirety of the earth. Everything is his. Recently, maybe you saw this, the Hubble telescope took a picture, a massive picture, an insanely large picture of the Andromeda galaxy, our closest galactic neighbor. And it shows over a hundred million stars. It takes hundreds of HD TVs just to be able to see this image in its fullness. It shows a hundred million stars and it's a massive picture. The distance from one end to the other is 40,000 light years, 40,000 light years. You know something's big when you don't measure it in miles anymore, you measure it in years. And in case you don't know how long a light year is, how far that is, I didn't know, I had to look it up. It's this one light year is 5.88 trillion miles. There's 40,000 of those just in this small part of this picture of this galaxy. Verse 14 says God owns that. God owns that. It's his, all of it. Yet, Moses says in verse 15, Don't forget the insane love of God. The God who owns and created the highest heavens is the same God who set his heart in love on Abraham and his family, on his chosen people. And listen to me this morning. If you know Christ, if you're in Christ, then that means that this is true for you as well. So why does he say this now? Because he's giving us the why to the what of the question he's asked. What does God require? Loving and following him in all things. Why? Because he first loved us. As John clarifies in 1 John 4, we did not love God first. He loved us first. And because he loved us first, now we can love. Now we can love. It's on the basis of God's love that God's people are called to love. First, to love the Lord their God with everything that they have. But also to love others. As we see in verse 19. Let's go ahead and jump down to verses 17 through 20 because we see there that Moses kind of lays out a very similar pattern talking about God, talking about what our lives should look like. Verse 17 says this, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. The greatness of God is on display. He is the God of gods, the Lord of lords. He is great, mighty, and awesome. But in his exalted state, being high and lifted up, he does not overlook those who are in humble states. In fact, he doesn't just look to us in humble states because all of us are in humble states compared to who God is. He looks to those who are in the humblest of states. He looks to those that are in the poor, in a poor situation and circumstance, the orphan, the widow, the stranger or sojourner. 
And he provides for them. He loves, his love is for all people of all nations in all circumstances. In verse 12, Israel is called to love God. In verse 19, they are called to love others as God does. This is what it means to love him, to fear him, to serve him, to hold fast to him, to hope in him. See, what Moses is doing in essence is calling them to live a life of devotion to the God who saved them. Moses is defining discipleship here, what it means to follow God. A life of devotion and discipleship is a life that is marked by obedience and worship. It's marked by obedience and worship. And these two things are inextricably linked with one another in God's eyes. Because obedience is an act of worship. It's an act of loving God, of fearing God, of serving him. But we have to be careful not to think that we're paying God back for anything. But we can't pay God back. We don't live a debtor's ethic towards God. Because as we live, as we walk in obedience, as we give worship to God, we are not paying back grace. We're more indebted to it, as we'll see. So as we live lives of obedience as an act of worship, but this is the cool thing about it, is that as we worship God, as we behold him for who he is, as we remember that, as as he's calling uh, Israel to do, that once they were sojourners in the land of Egypt, but God rescued them out of that, that 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 the response to that is worship. And as they worship, they desire and long to walk in obedience. It fosters that in their lives. Moses drives this point home in the last two verses, verses 21 and 22. Verse 21, he says, he is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. And now the Lord, your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the heaven of heaven. Moses says, he is your praise. All worship should be given to him. He is your God. All obedience should be given to him. Why? Because of the great and awesome things that he has done for you. Because he is God. And he has been faithful to his plans and his people. Now in some ways we could expect Moses to stop there. He asks the question, what does God require of you? And he gives the the answer to that question and the why to that answer. It's a good exhortation for God's people. They're about to walk into the promised land and, and Moses wants to instruct them on how to live. And so he's kind of answered that question. Seems satisfactory, but it isn't all that Moses says, is it? We skipped a verse. Look at verse 16. He says something key in verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Well, let's, say, let's be honest. That sounds weird, right? That sounds weird. I mean, certainly uncomfortable. We can understand what circumcision is, but why in the world is Moses talking about that when he says that we should circumcise our hearts? So we have to see verse 16 is the center point of this text. Everything that comes before and after is being held together like a tent post to this text, this exhortation, this encouragement that Moses gives. You are to love God and you are to love others, but in order to do that, You must circumcise your heart. See, what Moses is doing here is diagnosing a problem. See, the people of Israel know their history. That they know that God chose Abraham when Abraham wasn't looking for God. They know that God made promises to Abraham and to his people. They know that through Abraham, all nations would be blessed. This is the covenant promise that God made to their father Abraham. 
They also know that the sign of being a member of this covenant promise was circumcision for the males of a family. Now, I'm not going to get into the why that is the sign, but it is. A sign of being a partaker of God's promises is to be circumcised. So he says in verse 16, circumcise your hearts, no longer be stubborn. We saw in chapter 9 that he talked about their stubbornness. He said, remember, do not forget your stubborn ways, yet God's grace in that. But see, when Moses says all these things in these few verses in chapter 10, as he reminds them of God's love that's been set on them by choosing them, this would remind them of the covenant promise and the covenant sign. See, Moses is seeking in this question, in this command, excuse me, to circumcise your heart is to diagnose a heart problem. Because there's a temptation. There's a temptation on the part of the people to think that at the end of the day, they're good to go. They're good to go because they have the covenant sign. And that what God really requires is merely just kind of a, a, a bit of an effort to follow him. And maybe just outward obedience. As long as I look good, as things look like we're kind of following him, that's all that matters because I'm good to go. I have the covenant sign. This could be similar to some of us who think, man, because I walked down an aisle at a church, because I prayed a prayer at one time, that that's what saved me. Let, us, let me remind you and myself this morning that that's not what saves you. God is the one who saves you. Moses is pressing on that. It's not about the outward obedience. It's about the reality of your heart. The only way they can truly be devoted to God and worship him is if their obedience flows from a heart that has been truly changed. See, what the people need to be concerned with is not if they're following all of the rules performing religious worship activities, or even have the sign of the covenant, what they need to be concerned with is the status of their heart. Because it's out of the heart that everything else flows, worship, obedience, or lack thereof. See, circumcising the heart is about the removal of the stubbornness that prevents God's people from being able to properly love and follow God. Circumcision is about cutting away. He says it's about cutting away those, those things that clamor for our attention, clamor for our worship, clamor for our devotion. It's cutting those things off, removing them from our hearts so that our heart might be fully devoted to the Lord. See, this command that Moses gives to God's people forces them to do one of three things. They can flat out ignore what Moses has to say. They can try to do it on their own. They can try to achieve this on their own. Or they can cry out to God for him to do this work because they realize they are unable to do it. But the sad reality for Israel is that in many ways they ignore Moses and do not listen to what he says. Because at the end of the day, they like, they even love the covenant promises that God gives to them. But they do not love the covenant call that God gives to them. To be wholly and completely devoted to him who saved them, not anyone or anything else. And the consequences for this continued rebellion is catastrophic for them. That they end up going into the land, but they don't last there very long before they are exiled because they continue to rebel against God. They continue to chase after other gods and lovers. Their hearts were not circumcised. See, God's people need heart surgery But it's not something they can accomplish on their own. Just as God redeemed them out of Egypt by his grace, just as he continued to persevere with them by his grace, they need God by his grace to bring about transformation in their lives. 
What does God require, Moses asks. He requires obedience and worship, following him and loving him alone. But you cannot, they cannot do this unless God changes their heart. Now, why do you and I need to pay attention to this this morning? Why do we need to pay attention to this today? Because the same question Moses asks Israel is a relevant question for us. Now, what does God require of you? What does he require of you? And the answer is the same. God is unchanging. God requires that we fear him, walk in all his ways, love him, serve him with all our heart and soul, and follow his commandments and statutes. Because he's worthy of that level of devotion. He he is the God of all creation, holy, mighty, and awesome. He is above all and over all. There is nothing else, no one else worthy of such adoration besides this God. So this forces us to do this one of the same three things. We can either ignore this, we can try to achieve this on our own, or we can cry out to God to do a work in us. But here's the reality for Israel and for you and for me. The first two options of ignoring it or trying to do it on our own only lead to death. Because apart from God, there is no way for you and me to live the life of devotion, obedience, and worship that God requires. But the good news this morning is that there is good news. There is good news. See, Moses told Israel that they would rebel against God. Even after saying all this to them, he later on says, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to rebel against God. You're going to rebel against God, and he is going to remove you from this land. But he says to them that God would continue to remain faithful to his plans and his people. Because if we go all the way back before God calls Abraham, before the promises, before he promises anything to Abraham, God made another promise. When sin entered into the world through the willful rebellion of our first parents, through Adam and Eve, that's what sin is, rebellion against God. When it entered into the world, God pronounced judgment, but he also pronounced grace. He promised redemption. He said that he would send a redeemer and a conqueror of sin. And this redeemer would come from the seed of Eve and he would crush the head of the rebellious serpent. And by crushing the head of the rebellious serpent, he would also crush sin and the death it brings because of the rebellion that now lies in the heart of every single person. Moses called the people to follow God wholly and completely as Lord to love him and love others. But to do that, they would need new hearts. See, the good news in all this is that God says that he recognized, he knows that they can't do this on their own. It's forcing them to cry out to them. And he says to them, promises to them that he will do this work. He will do this work in their hearts to bring about new hearts, something they can't do on their own, something you cannot do on your own. Later on in Deuteronomy, verse 6 of chapter 30, he says this, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Similarly, in Ezekiel chapter 36, we see that after the people have continued to be in rebellion, that God makes a promise a promise of what he's going to do in his people. He says, I will sprinkle, sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
God always intended to fulfill this promise of changing the hearts of his people so that they would be able to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might. Because apart from his intervening work, all would be lost. He planned before time began to do this saving work and also this transforming work. And he always planned to do it through the seed of Eve that would crush the head of the serpent through the Redeemer. The Redeemer who ultimately and fully is fulfilled in and through Jesus and none other. Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 through 5 say, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. As Evan said this morning, we, we don't just... Are we not just forgiven and God tolerates us? He says, well, I'll just overlook that. I'll pay for your sin, but don't get too close to me. No, he adopts us into his family because of what Christ has done for us. This is God's grace to all, to, to all who believe, to all who trust in Christ alone, to those past and present. Christ is the only one who can save us and in saving us, give us new hearts. See, we have to understand that Jesus did not live a perfect life, die a sacrificial death, and rise again from the dead merely to save us from our sin. He certainly did all of that, but it wasn't merely to save us from our sin, but also to change our lives here and now. To transform our hearts, to make us more like him, to give us a new identity, to set us free. Listen this morning to Titus 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 11. Paul writes this to Titus. He says this, for, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and it accomplishes salvation for all people. It's in Christ alone that salvation is accomplished. Nothing else is added to that. It's just Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross, and it's for all people. Now, that doesn't mean that all people will be saved. It means that people from every tribe, every language, and every nation will be saved. This is global grace. But then notice what Paul says right after this. If you look at Titus 2, right after this, I'll read the whole thing. Verses 11 through 14, he says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then he says this, training us. Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Sojourn this morning, we need to understand something critical, something key. And it's this, that the grace that saves us is the grace that changes us. The grace that saves us is the grace that changes us. What does God require? To fear him, follow him, love him, serve him, obey him. But you and I are not saved because we do these things. But listen, we're also also not saved. And then after that, that we have to fix that on our own. That we have to figure that out on our own. That we have to change our hearts on our own. That we have to try harder and do better. We are saved and then called to rest in the transforming grace of Jesus. You and I need circumcised hearts. We need transformed hearts. And God alone is the one who can and will do this work in us because of what Jesus has done for us. 
Listen, if you have a cut on your body, you can sew yourself up. I wouldn't recommend it, but you could do it. If you have a toothache, you can pull your own tooth out. If you need to amputate a limb, you can do that yourself. But listen, if you need heart surgery, if you need a heart transplant, you cannot do that on your own. You cannot do that on your own. That's true physically, but even more so it's true spiritually. You cannot do that work on your own. You need God to do that work in you. And the good news this morning is that God says that he will do that work because of what Jesus has done. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says that Jesus is our righteousness. He lived the perfect life for us. The only way that we are acceptable before God is because Christ lived a perfectly righteous life. But it also says that Jesus is our redemption. He paid the price for our sin to pull us out of the depths and darkness of our sin. But then it also said that Jesus is our sanctification. Sanctification is just a, a fancy word for being made more like Jesus. See, we're made more like Jesus through Jesus. It's the only way it's possible. Apart from him, we're utterly lost. But with Jesus, we have all the riches of God's grace, both to save us and to transform us. All of us need circumcised hearts because our hearts are in one of two places. They're in one of two places, two statuses right now. This morning, for everyone in this room, we either have a dysfunctional heart, cold, indifferent, and dead, unwilling and unable to know, follow, love, and worship the God of all creation, or we have hearts that have experienced God's saving grace, but are still in need of his continued transforming grace. For both of us, though, the change of our hearts does not come through our self-will. It comes through Jesus. So we have to understand that we're not called to follow Jesus so that we can receive grace. It's not obey and fear the Lord and love him to gain his favor. So let me say to you this morning, if you've been trying to obey God's commands and do, do religious type of things, trying to be a good person, thinking that that will gain grace from you from God, listen to me this morning, stop. Stop. And when I say stop, what I'm saying is rest. Rest from trying to prove something to God so that he'll think that you're good enough. Because here's the, here's the reality. You aren't good enough. And you never can be good enough. But when you recognize that, that's when freedom comes. That's when freedom comes. Because when you recognize that you can't do what God requires... You can't do what God requires. It's in that moment by faith that you can turn away from your self-made religion and turn to Christ who has done it for you, who lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death, who rose again so that you could be forgiven and set free. Maybe this morning you need to respond to God's grace today for the first time. What you can never do, what you could never accomplish, Christ has done and Christ has accomplished. Would you respond to God's grace today if you've never done that before? See, it's then that we realize from beginning to end that grace has been given in and through Christ. And that because grace has been given by God and, and received by us in faith, it's only then that we can now follow him with our obedience and our worship. See, grace cultivates obedience and worship in our lives. That's what Titus 2 is saying Grace cultivates this in our lives. 
It's grace that enables us to fear God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve him with all our heart and soul, to keep his commands. And it is always in all for our good, our joy, and to the praise and glory of our God. Surgeon, again, this morning, we have to see that what God requires, perfect righteousness and worship, he provides in and through Jesus. What God demands from us now is only possible because of what he has first done for us and is now doing in us. We are not worthy on our own to come before him, but Jesus has made a way. And now we don't change on our own. Jesus does that work in us. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I've known that verse for a while. And as I've often thought about it, for me, what I think about mostly with that verse as I read it is that my obedience shows my love for Jesus. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. It shows my love. It proves my love for Jesus. And in some senses, that's true. A few verses later, Jesus basically says that as we obey, so we show our love. But see, oftentimes I've gotten that twisted and jacked it up. Because in my mind, I say, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So all my obedience is, is, kind of, is trying to garner and gain God's love and prove God, God, I really love you. Look at all the things I'm doing for you. See, see all this. God, I love you. Do you know I love you? Do you, not, do, do you know I love you? And in the midst of that, I've forgotten about grace. I want to obey on my own to prove my love for God. I get grace saved me, but now, God, I got to do this on my own. I, I got to achieve something for you. To show my love for you. But there's something more to what Jesus says in verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 15 of John. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What he's saying is, if you love me, your love for me will lead you to walk in obedience. See, I was getting it backwards. That my obedience comes first, but what Jesus is saying, like, it's your worship. As you love me, as you recognize what I've done for you, recognize who I am, that your worship of me will cultivate and lead to walking in the way that God has called you to. See, when God's grace so captivates our hearts, we find ourselves wanting to obey and follow him, not because we're obligated to Not because we want to avoid hell. Not because we think that we get something from God because of all of these things. That God gives us more love because of that. We find ourselves obeying because we love our God and King. That's what God's transforming grace cultivates within us. We can't muster that up on our own. It cultivates in us a love for God which leads to living our life for him. So another question we have to ask then is how do I cultivate a love for God? If I can't just muster that up on my own, how do I cultivate a love for God? Cultivating a love for God means that we practice the spiritual disciplines that God's given to us. And there are two main spiritual disciplines. Two ultimate spiritual disciplines. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Because the reason that we have to continue to practice repentance and faith, that it's not just when we first believed... Is because every time that we repent, every time we place our faith in Christ and what he's done, it causes us to constantly look away from ourselves. To, to not keep trying to do stuff on our own. It causes us to look away from ourselves and our sin and to look in faith to the God who saves and changes. See, this is what I was missing. I was looking at myself instead of my Savior. 
I was thinking that I had to get this. I had to overcome this. I had to fix my heart. I needed to do my own heart surgery. That I needed to figure out how to transform my heart so that I could obey God and therefore show my love to him. But this is not about trying harder. It's not about doing better. It's not about making more resolutions and declarations. That I'll never do that again. Or I'll always do more of this. Because that will not and does not work. No, it's about grace. The grace that saves is the grace that enables you to put off the old self. What's been crucified with Christ on the cross. To put it off, to throw it away, and to put on the new. To be who you are in Christ. To remember that you've been united together with Jesus. See, this is about abiding in Jesus. Listen to the words of Jesus to you this morning out of John chapter 15. Jesus says this, John 15, verses 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. See, if we truly know Christ, our lives will be changed. We will bear fruit because we're attached to Christ. We're united with Christ. That's his promise to you. We prove that we're his because of the fruit that he manifests in our lives. But notice what he says here. There's a pruning process that takes place. If you're attached to him, if you're abiding him, he will prune you so that you can bear more fruit. But listen, when you prune something, it doesn't look very nice at the beginning. It looks kind of raggedy. It's a painful process. There's a cutting away of things. It'd be easier not to do that. Man, that's God's grace to us, to prune us, to cut away all the things that clamor for our, his, for our attention away from him so that we might bear more fruit, that we might walk in the way that he's called us to. That's what it looks like to abide in Jesus. That's the, the fruit of abiding in Jesus. See, abiding in Jesus means that we want to walk closely with Jesus. We want to be in relationship with Jesus. We want to follow Jesus in everything that he has done and called us to, which means that we utilize every means of grace that Jesus has given to us to draw closer to him, to have our minds and hearts saturated in the goodness of who he is, what he has done and what he's doing. God's given us his word. His word that's living and active, that divides us, that pierces us to the depths of who we are. He gives us his word so that we might abide in Jesus. He gives us prayer. Notice what he said in John 15, that we can ask anything and he'll do that for us. We can communicate with our God because he loves us and cares for us and wants us to be able to love and serve and follow him. 
The means of grace of gathering with the church, as I said this morning, that's God's gift of grace to us, to be together with his people, being in community, serving, singing, listening, resting. See, as we abide in Jesus, walking closely with Jesus, that's when he will do this pruning work that we all so desperately need. Now, some of you may be cynical right now. You may be cynical thinking, yeah, you know what? I've tried all these things and it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You're still looking at porn. You're still getting angry with your kids. You're still battling laziness, lying, or love of money. Or maybe for some of you this morning whose lives are full right now, taking care of things like your home and your growing family, you you hear this and saying, abiding in Jesus, I don't have time to abide in Jesus. I don't have time to abide in Jesus. But I want you to listen this morning. You are called Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, you are called to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But he says that we do this while knowing and believing that it is God who wills and works in us for his good pleasure. It's God's doing with our participation. See, so often we think, man, this is about me, that I have to get this right, that I have to do these things. I didn't do well this week in reading my Bible, so I need to be better this week about doing that. It's it's all me, but we forget that this is God working within us. And he's given us these things to help us abide in him. You and I are so prone to want quick fixes to the challenges of our lives. But there are no quick fixes. Only God's unrelenting grace. And God's unrelenting grace promises this to you, that he will complete the good work that he began in you that he will change you and transform you from one degree of glory to another. That he will make you more like Christ. That he will do this as we strive to abide in him. And as we strive to abide in him, our love for God grows. And as our love for God grows, when temptation comes, we find ourselves faced with two options. We can pursue temporary pleasure in partaking in whatever that might be for you. Maybe it's control. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's overeating or oversleeping. Maybe it's anger or gossip. Maybe it's putting someone down to build yourself up. Maybe it's lying. We can pursue those things when we're faced with that temptation. Or we can look to our Savior King and say, I know that Jesus is better. I know that all of his commands are for my joy and my good. And you might honestly think that sometimes you're sitting there and this temptation has come to you. That if you're honest with yourself, you're saying, you know what? Right now, I don't want to follow him. I don't want to walk in obedience. I don't want to abide in Jesus. But in faith, I will. In faith, I'll turn away from the old way and believe today. Believe today that Jesus is better because I know that he's good I know that he's faithful. I know that he's true because I know that God loves me and sent his son to rescue me and make me brand new. And so because of that, I won't click on that picture. I won't watch that video. I won't eat more cookies. I won't lash out at my husband or my kids. I won't won't roll my eyes at someone that I'm frustrated with. And here's God's grace to you. As you abide in Jesus... As you walk with Jesus and follow Jesus and trust that Jesus is better, what you find happening is that those other things that are clamoring for your affections and your heart start falling away more and more because you start to see them for what they're worth. 
You see behind the false promises that they give of temporary pleasure and recognize that behind a shiny veneer is only death. Listen, friend, in those moments, your heart is being circumcised. God is doing a pruning work in you. You are being made more like Jesus from one degree of glory to another. And that's what God's done in my own life. As I've battled against different sin struggles in my life is starting to recognize that it's not about me trying to circumcise my own heart. But the more I abide in my Savior, the more that I trust that Jesus is better, the more that I look to him and am captivated by his love for me, his grace for me, I start to see that all these other things are completely worthless. And my love for my God grows. God does that work in me. And this is a lifelong journey. We will fail and falter along the way. We will not be perfect We will not be complete until Jesus returns. But remember this this morning. The victory is not yours to achieve. Jesus already won the victory for you. Obedience now is possible because Jesus enables you to obey. Not because you figure it out on your own. God saved you by his grace. Now God is going to change you by his grace. So look to Jesus, abide in Jesus, know and believe today that Jesus is better than anything and everything else. That's for your good and for God's glory. Listen, sojourn, the question, what does God require of you is not about minimum requirements. It's not looking at the the syllabus and saying, I just be fine with me this semester. How, How can I just skate by? I just want to pass the class. This is not about minimum requirements. When we ask that question, what does God require of you? God wants your whole life. Every part of it. He wants your parenting. He wants your finances. He wants your marriage. He wants your dating. He wants your job. God wants your Instagram account and your Facebook page. He wants your thoughts. He wants your actions. He wants all of it because he wants all of you. He wants all of you. That's God's love for you. And that's God's grace to you. So come to him. Abide in him. Follow him. He is your praise. He is your God. There is no other. He is good. He is gracious. And he is faithful to bring you all the way home. You and I can now love God because he first loved us. And praise God for his amazing, amazing grace to us. One of the means of grace that God has given us to help, to help us abide in Jesus is communion. Communion symbolizes what Christ has done for us. The bread broken is a picture of Christ's body broken and given for us. The cup is a picture of Christ's blood shed for us. But listen, these are not just symbols. Taking communion also refreshes our soul. As we take these physical elements of food and drink, they provide spiritual nourishment to our heart and soul. So what this means for you and for me today is that we should run to the table this morning. We should run to the table this morning. And that's okay with me if you get up and run to the table this morning. Just don't knock anybody over. We should run to the table this morning. Because listen, we all have sin that remains. But when we come to the table, we are both reminded of and refreshed in the grace that saves and the grace that changes us. See, we don't come this morning after we've cleaned ourselves up. We don't come after we get our life in order. We don't come saying, as Alan said earlier, that we've, got, we've had a good week and so we can come to the table this morning. 
because we've been really faithful this week so that we deserve to come to this table this morning. Or on the flip side of that, that it's been a hard week for us. No, we don't come after we've overcome what remains of the old life. We come to the table because we are just as desperate for grace today as when we first believed. So if you truly know Christ, not about Christ, if you truly know him, come to the table this morning with eagerness. Come, abide in Jesus. And for those of you that don't know Christ, I want to ask you not to come forward to the table this morning. Because doing this activity doesn't get you saving grace. It doesn't do anything for you in that way. What has to happen first is that you actually acknowledge that you need God's grace. So instead of coming forward to take communion, we want you to take Christ today. We want you to turn away from trying to do things on your own, to try and earn favor with God on your own, to try and be a good person and acknowledge before God that, the, that you'd have nothing good to give him. But that's exactly where God would have you, coming with empty hands saying, God, save me. I can't do this on my own. He says, I know you can't do it on your own. That's why I sent my son for you. So turn to Christ today in faith, believing that he did what he said he came to do, to pay for your sin, to rescue, and now he promises to change you and transform you. So if you don't know Christ, just call out to him today. We'd love for you to talk with us after. We'd love to pray with you afterwards if you want to start a relationship with Jesus so that next week you can come forward and take the elements, being reminded and refreshed that God's grace is not only for your salvation, but also your transformation. Those of you that will come forward, come forward when you're ready to receive the elements and just tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you. Let's pray. Father, we are just reminded this morning that life is difficult, that life is hard. Father, we just pray that you would help us to believe that your grace is sufficient for us. That your grace doesn't just save us, it also transforms us. So I pray that you'd help us to abide in you. That we wouldn't listen today and listen this morning and think, well, okay, I need to do better this week. I need to try harder this week. That this morning what we would do is turn to Christ again and trust in him again and ask for you to change us and transform us because of your grace. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful. You are faithful not only to redeem us, not only to forgive us of our sin, but to get all of that junk out of our life, to make us more like Christ. So Lord, we pray this morning that we would respond by just seeking to abide in you. Abide in you. Teach us through your grace to renounce the things of this world, to renounce ungodliness, to walk in the way that you've called us to, to worship you in all of our life, because it's for our good and it's for your glory. Lord, we love you and we thank you that we can love you because you first loved us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.